Ecclesiastics 5 and 6. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vows. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore fear God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth, hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth, lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil, and they carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toll for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions, and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. 
A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toll is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? This is the word of the Lord. Now it's hard to know what to do when you're a preacher and you come across a verse like Ecclesiastes 5 verse 3. Many words mark the speech of a fool. Should I sit down now? Or do I continue on speaking and just prove the point? Well, foolish or not, I'm going to do my best to not use too many words this morning. But I will begin with words of prayer and ask that God would help us understand what we read. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you, the all-wise, all-knowing one, may give us wisdom to know how to live in this world. Lord, open our eyes that we may understand these words of Ecclesiastes. But Lord, may we leave this place changed by what we learn. And we ask this because it's good for us, and we ask it because it brings you glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I will continue Gavin's tradition. We will have a time for questions and maybe answers after. Uh, So I'll flag that now. If I say something that you want to clarify, uh, we'll have a time at the end. But for the past two weeks, we've been considering this book of Ecclesiastes. Gavin's done an excellent job at laying the foundation for understanding this book. Uh, If you did miss the first two sermons, do go back and listen to them. But we've seen already... How, like all wisdom books in the Bible, Ecclesiastes is here to help us understand God's world. But Ecclesiastes in particular helps us understand this world, this side of the fall. It helps us understand the brokenness of the world. As Gavin has has shown us, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is asking the question, Can we overcome the effects of the fall in this life? Is it possible to get heaven on earth? And of course, the answer has been an emphatic no. But that doesn't stop us from trying, does it? We're all still trying to make the best 
of our lives in this fallen world. I imagine that's why many of us are living in Noosa right now. It's astounding how few of us actually were born here, right? We've all come here because we've been looking for something, I presume. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there can be something wrong with that, but there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. There's nothing godly about trying to make your life miserable. That's, that's foolish. Of course, we're all going to try and make our lives better. But Ecclesiastes shows us that there are both good and bad ways of doing that. There are things in our lives that give us hope and joy in this fallen world. And yet there are things, sometimes even the same things, which can lead to misery and despair. Well, today we're looking at two of those things. Two things that we could be tempted to look to for meaning, for hope, for joy in this life. Things that can offer us hope and satisfaction. And yet two things at the same time that if approached in the wrong way can lead to misery and fear and destruction. The first of those things we're going to look at is God, which might seem a little surprising to you. Oh, I didn't want that all to appear just yet. That's all right. Some people read Ecclesiastes and they think it's a reflection on life in the world without God. It's as if the the author is, is showing us what the world is like if God wasn't there. That's not right, and we see it's clearly not right with the first seven verses of chapter five, because the teacher puts God squarely in view. And when he does, he wants to make sure we know the God that we're dealing with. Have a look, chapter five, beginning at verse one. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to, than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. I want you to imagine just for a second the teacher is standing watching people going into the temple in Jerusalem. They're going to meet with God. Here are people who know the vanity of life in this fallen world. They know that God is the only one who can, they can look to to bring them any sense of meaning and hope. But as the teacher watches these people worshipping in the temple he sees that they have no idea who this God even is. You see, these are people who have lots to say to God, many sacrifices to make for him. They make grand promises of all the things they're going to do for him. But it's all about them. They have very little regard for God at all. Now, if you have someone in your life with a a big head, someone who's a bit arrogant, uh, you'll know that they have this ability to make everyone else around them look and feel small. Well, that's what these worshippers are doing with God. 
They've, they've flipped the script. They've reversed the equation. They've made themselves big with this overinflated sense of self. And in so doing, they make God the one thing that he must never be, insignificantly small. Well, the teacher says it's foolish. Now, in the Bible, foolishness has very little to do with intelligence. A fool is not an unintelligent person, but a person who willfully refuses to accept the truth. Maybe you might put flat earthers in that category. They're not unintelligent, they're just refusing to see something that the evidence points to. But in the Bible, the fool is the person who refuses to accept the truth that God is God. That's why in Psalm 14 it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They deny the evidence, they push it out, they just don't want to believe it. But here in Ecclesiastes, the fool is the one who acts as if they, the creature, are on the same level as the God who created them. They've made God small because they've made themselves big. Now, it's worth asking ourselves the question, how big is our God? Because so many people today worship a very, very small God. They worship a God who is just like them. And when you've got a God who is small, it's easy to make your relationship more about you than it is about him. When your God is small, it's easy to treat him as a means to your ends. When your God is small, you'll never be challenged, never corrected, never forced to face up to your own sinfulness. But friends, if you have a God like that, well, you don't have a God at all, do you? It's foolishness. It's meaningless. Now, when I read this passage, the thing that instantly came to my mind was, was times in my life where I've had well-meaning Christians seeking to encourage me as you know, some young up-and-coming minister. And, and the way they would encourage me is by telling me, you're going to do great things for God. Now, I, I understand what they were trying to do, but to me it just sounded so stupid. Just, just consider me do great things for God. On the one hand, you have God who sneezes and out comes the Milky Way galaxy with its hundreds of billions of stars. And then you have me who can't even swallow a Panadol and still relies on my wife to pick my clothes. On what planet am I going to do something great for God? It's, it's foolish. God is in heaven, says the teacher, and we are on earth. We, we must see the difference. He is omnipotent. We are impotent. He is omniscient. I don't even know what the opposite of that word is. That's how little I know. And if we're going to live well in this world, we need to get a right perspective of God and who we are in relationship to him. Well, how do we do that? Well, verse 1, we guard our steps. We be careful. Also, verse 1, we go near to listen rather than to talk and offer empty sacrifices as if we might impress God. 
In verse 7, we fear him. Friends, as you think about your relationship with God, I want you to ask yourself the question. Do you have this right distance between you and God? Do you recognize that you are on earth and he is infinitely greater than you? Do you treat him like your equal? As if you can make a deal with him? As if you can do something for him if he does something for you? Friends, fear God. And don't don't live petrified of God. Don't be afraid of God. But throw away your plastic-wrapped, domesticated God that exists to serve you. And stand in awestruck wonder at the God who created you and continues to love you despite your ongoing and frequent failure to bow your knee before him. Friends, there is a right way and a wrong way to view God. And if we're going to live well in this fallen world, we need to humble ourselves before God and fear him. But point number two this morning is that the same is true for money. There is a right way and a wrong way to view money. And if we're going to live well in this broken world, we need to get the right perspective. Now the remainder of chapter five and and most of chapter six the teacher sets out to give us this right view of money. And he does that by showing us seven points at which money will fail you. He recognizes that people look to money for hope and meaning. They look to money as the solution to their problems in this world. And so he tests that. He says, does money really solve your problems? And as he does that, he shows us seven pitfalls of money. He begins by showing us that the pursuit of money inevitably leads to injustice. Verse 8, he says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. Why should we not be surprised? For the official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The problem, says the teacher, is that there is a long chain of command and every single one in the hierarchy wants to get paid. They all want more. And so where do people at the top get their money? Well, they get their money from the people at the bottom. Even the king, we're told in verse 9, gets his profit from the field. Well, it's certainly still the case that the poor are oppressed by greedy government today. But perhaps it's even more the case that the poor are oppressed by corporations, by businesses. I mean, we we live in a society that, that operates on the basis of the rich benefiting from at the expense of the poor. That that's almost a feature of the system. Now, I read this week of another billionaire running for president this time in Taiwan. I won't try and pronounce his name, 
But the man in question, he made his billions from operating the factories that made the iPhone. Now, if you've heard anything about these factories, they're notorious for their treatment of their employees. Thousands upon thousands of employees were treated basically like slaves. They were uh, minimum 12-hour shifts. Overtime was a requirement. On shift, they were forbidden from speaking or taking toilet breaks. And at its worst, these factories had dozens of employees commit suicide every year. Do not be surprised, says the teacher. Where there is the pursuit of money, oppression will follow after. Well, the brokenness of the system is only amplified in verse 10, where the speaker, the teacher, shows us the second pitfall of money, which is that while the rich get richer, they don't get happier. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. I read a study recently that found two-thirds of people earning more than $150,000 a year believed they didn't have enough to buy the things they need. Not the things they want, the things they need. How is that? Because money doesn't satisfy It's like eating sugar. It only makes you want more. Now, there's a word that's been coined uh, to describe this phenomenon in our society. It's called affluenza. It's been defined as the painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. It's not just the rich that that affects, though, is it? Whoever the rich are. I'm sure I'm not the only one that doesn't get sucked into thinking that life would just be that little bit better if I had a little bit more. Hear these wise words. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. Problem number three with money is that it attracts unwanted pests. Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Now, whether it's your kids asking for your credit card or whether it's freeloaders taking advantage of your generosity, the more you have, the more people around you who want what you have. That's the point of verse 11. The problem number four of money comes in verse 12 where the teacher tells us that wealth brings insomnia. He says the sleep of a a laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Now at first when I read this, I thought he was saying that when you're you're rich, you're, you're anxious, you're overworked and so you can't sleep because of your anxiety. But in fact, he's saying the opposite of that. He says, unlike the laborer who works hard and falls asleep every night no matter how much they've had to eat because they've been working hard, 
The rich person who spends their life eating and lazing about, they can't sleep because they haven't done anything to tire themselves. Now, the general point here is that pursuing wealth is bad for you. It's bad for your physical health. It's bad for your mental health. One commentator pointed out how true this is in Western society, in our culture of gyms and weight loss clinics. And he says, isn't it absurd that we pour money and effort into undoing the damage caused by money and ease? Pursuing money is bad for us, says the teacher. In verse 13 and 14, he points out the absurdity of money such that if we hoard it, it hurts us. And yet if we lose it, it hurts us even more. Now we see that in our world, don't we? How many marriages break down over husbands or wives devoting themselves to the pursuit of money instead of devoting themselves to their family? Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. And equally so, how many lives crumble when that same wealth is lost through a bad business venture? Or some other misfortune. It hurts you if you hoard it. It hurts you even more if you lose it. Pitfall number six is the sobering realization in verses 15 and 16 that no matter how much money you have, none of it is going with you when you die. Everyone comes naked. (coughs) Excuse me. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. And finally, in answer to the question, what do you gain for all your chasing after money? Verse 17, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Just consider that for a moment. How much of the frustration and anger in your own life could be attributed to your own disordered love of money? Well, friends, this is what money does. This is what the teacher wants us to see. Money is hard to get, terrifying to lose. When you don't have it, you want it. When you have it, you want more of it. And when you have lots of it, it makes you more miserable than you were when you didn't have it. This is the teacher's picture of money. And yet, as clear as many of these pitfalls of money are to us, I wonder how many of us actually believe that and so we know that money doesn't satisfy and yet how many of us find ourselves thinking that it will wouldn't we be better off with just a little more we're going to have a committee of management meeting after church this morning Uh, i get sent lots of paperwork that i'm supposed to share with the committee most of it i do but this week came through one that was about came from church office asking churches to pay their ministers more. I had great delight in passing that one on to the committee of management. I thought, oh, great news. I'm sure we'll discuss this one. 
we all find ourselves thinking that money will satisfy, don't we? Or maybe not you. Maybe I'm alone. But friends, what do we do about this? We've seen these pitfalls of money. We know that we find them hard to accept. What do we do? Well, first of all, we ask God to help us see that money is not the solution to the brokenness of this world. It cannot save you. So don't lean on it. It's not the solution to the problems you face in this broken world. And if you treat it as if it is, well, most likely it will only add to your problems. But what do we do with it? Well, the teacher gives us a somewhat surprising answer. Because you might expect that after uncovering all these problems with money, the solution would simply be to get rid of it. Or at the very least, to treat it as a dangerous good. But do you see what the teacher says in verse 18? For all the the brokenness, for all the negative things he has said about money, he says in verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Friends, the way to avoid all the pitfalls of money is not to avoid money, but to actually receive it joyfully because it is a gift from God. Eat, drink, and find satisfaction is not a call to gluttony. He's not saying, well, just, you know, consume, consume, consume. No, no, eat, drink, and find satisfaction is a call to receive what God has given you as a gracious gift. Now, whether he's given you much or little, to enjoy it because it is he that has given it to you. Now, do you see how that subtly changes our response to money? You see, our world's idea of money is that the money itself is the blessing, and so we must pursue it. But what the teacher shows us is that the money, the money is good, But it is good because it has come from God. And so the the distinction in our minds is, does our money drive us to God or drive us away from God? Now friends, when when your money drives you to God, you will give thanks to him whether you have lots of it or whether you have none of it because it is God who is sovereign over our money. So I want you to consider this morning your own response to money. Where does your mind go when you think about your own financial situation? Do you see what you have as a gift, something that God has given you to enjoy, perhaps to enjoy most by giving it away? Or 
Or do you see money as your hope in this broken world? In chapter 6, verse 9, uh, chapter 6, the, the teacher goes on to, to uh, expand upon this idea of having wealth without having the enjoyment. He says it, it would be better to be a stillborn child than to have all the money in the world and yet not be able to enjoy it as a gift from God. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. Well, friends, what do your eyes see when it comes to money? There is a temptation for all of us, I think, to make money big in our lives and to make God small. And Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 helps us reverse the equation, doesn't it? What is our hope in this broken world? What is it that can enable us to continue living this side of the fall it is making God big it is fearing him it is making money small not relying on it not trusting in it but receiving it as a gracious gift from your heavenly father how about I pray Gracious God, we ask that we might leave this place changed. That if we have come in this morning with a high view of ourselves and a low view of you, that we might leave humbling ourselves with a grand view of you. And Lord, if we've come in this morning having a high view of money, and a desire to pursue wealth in this life. We pray that we might leave holding loosely to our money, receiving it as joyfully as a gracious gift from you, but recognising that it is not the solution to the problems of this world. It is our lot to enjoy. It is our lot to use wisely in this world. Lord, we pray that our hope may be in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.